or narratives uh, that tell us where we can find salvation and fulfillment and rest from the hells of life. Uh, And the problem is, is that none of those alternative stories, none of those alternative narratives, none of those alternative ways of fulfilling us really come through and can do what they claim that they can do. Uh, And so we need the gospel. We need to know exactly why it is that we're celebrating Advent and what it is and how we go about uh, doing that. And and so we're presenting the true alternative story, which is Jesus, uh, the incarnation of God, born to live the perfect life, to die the, the perfect sacrifice for us so that we might be forgiven for, uh, for sin and to be raised from the dead so that we'd have eternal life and that means he's also uh, going to come together, uh, come again. And so this is the true gospel. And it's interesting because um, a lot of people have asked in the midst of the Advent season, what exactly is with the candles, the Advent candles that you guys do? And, and I think that's a great question. I came to know Christ when I was 27 years old, and I didn't know anything. I had not grown up in the church. I did not grow up going to church for any reason whatsoever, ever, at all. And so I didn't know anything. And in fact, I would say the first 10 years of my Christian life, I still didn't know what Advent meant. And, and, and in fact, this is true. For a while, I thought Advent was part of the Hanukkah holiday. Okay, That's what I thought. I, did, I didn't know and then for a while, I thought it was like part of the, of the college bowl season. That it, it, it's just that those things overlap, okay? I, di- I didn't know. I was completely ignorant. And, and it was great when somebody finally said, here's what Advent is, and here's what the candles stand for. So a lot, a lot of you have asked, and so I'm just going to take a little bit of time to explain what's going on up here with the candles. Uh, all the candles together, there's five of them. We light each one. Uh, we light one of them. Uh, on each of the Sundays of Advent, the four Sundays before Christmas, and the last one, the center one, uh, is the one that gets lit on Christmas Eve. And each of them has a symbolic meaning or represents uh, something. All of them together represent the light of the Christ who has come into the world. But individually, the first candle that we, we uh, lit last week is the prophecy candle. And it's in honor and remembrance of the prophets who prophesied about Jesus' coming, uh, especially Isaiah and usually when, when, um, when we light the first candle, there might be a, a, if you've been in other churches and other traditions, you know that there's usually a reading from Isaiah uh, when they light the first candle. And so that's the prophecy candle. The second candle that we lit today is, is known as the Bethlehem candle. And, and really that represents the humble beginnings of, of our Messiah, of our Savior being born in a manger. That second candle is to help us remember the manger and the humility in which Christ came to this world in order to be our Savior. It is also sometimes called the love candle. It's, it's a representative of the love that the Father has for us in sending His Son to us. And so we think of that iconic verse from John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever would believe in Him will not perish but will have everlasting life. Uh, the third candle, which we'll light next week, is known as the shepherd's candle, and it represents joy, the joy that we should have during the Advent season about Jesus in our lives, and the joy that the shepherds had upon learning that the Savior uh, had been born. And then we just sang that iconic uh, Christmas song, Joy to the World, the Lord has come, let earth receive her King. So, so joy is a big part of Advent. In fact, the name of our series is The Sounding Joy. 
and, and, and that idea is that we're trying to produce a longing in our hearts for the Messiah. And then the last candle, which we'll light on the 22nd, is known as the, is the angel's candle. And it's the candle that represents the peace that we have now with God through his son, Jesus Christ. Which is nice because it was just a few weeks ago that we were looking at Romans chapter 5. And the fact that we can rejoice now in the peace that we have uh, with God. And so those four candles are representative of those things. And then the last candle, the center candle that will light Christmas Eve, is, is really representative of the life of Christ who has come, the incarnation. Baby Jesus, the actual incarnation of God, come in the flesh to save his people. And we celebrate that on Christmas Eve. And so that's what we're looking at. And, and so the the title of the series is, as I've mentioned, The Sounding Joy, and I want to hit on that for just a moment. As I do, you can be turning to two different texts that we're going to look at today. One is the one that uh, Eugene just read, which is Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. We're going to look at that every single week, but also we're going to supplement that today with Hebrews chapter 9. I don't ordinarily like to do that, give you two texts, because I know it's hard to kind of maneuver around, uh, but that's what we're going to do for these next couple of weeks. We're going to have the primary text, which is Colossians 1, and then there will be a, a secondary text. Today it's in Hebrews chapter 9. Of course, if you're, if you're on a device or you have an app, that's no problem. You can figure that out pretty easily. So, Advent, the sounding joy. Advent is a season of joy. At least it used to be primarily a season of joy. It seems in as though in the last several decades it's become really the season of stress and debt, the season of hurry and worry, and the season of consumption and consumerism. But before that, and, and concurrent with that, and what we're striving toward now is the fact that it's the season of joy. It's a season of hope. It's a season of anticipation. Um, not for the presents that we're going to open on, on Christmas Eve or Christmas morning that are under the tree, but the anticipation that Jesus is coming again and that he's already come once. It, it's a season of reflection. Instead of speeding up, we should try to purposefully, at times, slow down if we could. And I'm as guilty of that uh, as anybody in here. And it's a season of thanksgiving as well. I thought Aaron did a great job of pointing out last week how we're just up and down with this thanksgiving thing. You know, it's Thanksgiving Day and then within hours we're, we're so thankful that we're out buying a bunch of new stuff that we need to make us even more thankful on, on Good uh, not Good Friday, it's Black Friday. By the way, we're just naming all of it. We got Black Friday, Small Business Saturday, they took Sunday off and then it was Cyber Monday I'm, I'm like, it's Technology Tuesday, it's Undergarment Wednesday, it's whatever you want. I mean, we're going to have something going on every single day getting you to go out and spend money. I used to be in retail, so I understand how that works, okay? And it's insipid, let me tell you. I can say that now that I'm out of the business. Anyway, Advent, the word Advent literally means arrival. And this is really important. It's not just that we're celebrating the first arrival of God in the flesh, in Jesus. We do celebrate that. Baby Jesus in the manger, God has come to save his people. We celebrate that. But it's also a, a pointing ahead, a looking ahead at that second advent, that second arrival that is guaranteed to those of us who know, to everybody, but to those of us who know him especially, when, when he's going to come once more, and that time when he comes, it's not going to be to necessarily judge sin, but rather it's to set things right and to usher in the kingdom of of God in its finality. But there is some great irony here, as, as Aaron uh, so well pointed out last week, and, and we're going to continue to point out this week in the 
of this series. The Advent se- uh, season, which is today known as the holiday uh, season in our world today, we've talked about this before. It's one, of the most five, it's one of the five most stressful things that happens to human beings in our lives. The holiday season is one of the five most stressful things that happens to us. Now, what are the other four? Death of a loved one, divorce, losing a job, and moving. I usually get an amen on the moving one anyway. But here's what's funny about that. The, the, the holiday season is the only one, for most of us, the only one that recurs every year. Those other ones are often once or twice in a lifetime at the most, okay? Not as often, but we do this every single year, Advent. And it's in the top five with those other major tragedy and crises in our lives. Why is that? I would suggest that the reason it's in the top five most stressful and depressing things that we go through is because it's the time when we tend to spend the most amount of our time chasing false saviors that never save, and worshiping false gods that are not God, and looking for fulfillment in all these things that will never ultimately fulfill us. And it is exhausting. You don't have to raise your hand. Practically everybody did in the first service. I get it. But how many of you are already exhausted, and it's only the 8th of December? I'm tired. I was tired before Thanksgiving. It is exhausting. But we do it anyway every year. We just, we just fall into this same cycle. And, and again, I'm telling you, I've been a minister for 15 years. And for the first five years, I, I discovered a pattern. I would literally and metaphorically limp into Thanksgiving because the fall ministry season is so challenging and filled and busy and, and all that stuff. And so I would get to Thanksgiving and I would just collapse on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday and then somehow try to rally myself to get to church on Sunday to preach a message that was halfway coherent. But those three days I would spend on the couch. And some of you are like, that's just a turkey coma. Yes, in part. But part of it is because I would just just abuse myself up until Thanksgiving looking forward to those three days. And so I started promising myself, I am not going to limp into Thanksgiving anymore. Do you know how hard it is to be able to do that? It still happens. I still fall prey to those challenges. And so we do this every year. And so then rather than being filled with joy, we get stressed and we get depressed. Again, these are rhetorical questions. I'm assuming the answer to these questions is a resounding yes. But anyone here have too much to do this holiday season already? Any of you right now looking at your clock, looking at your phone, looking at your watch and going, how long is this guy going to go on? I got shopping to do this afternoon, man. And I think the Cardinals are playing too. So, okay, I get it. Anyone here spending too much money already? Anyone here anxious about spending time with people that you really don't want to spend time with, but you know you have to spend time with them because it's this season? That adds stress too. And please understand, I am not, I I really am not, I am not trying to add to your depression by telling you all of this. I'm not. Okay? I get it. I'm trying to tell you that there is an alternative story that is true. And it's the story that we're supposed to be leaning into at Advent. There's something better. We need to lean into this story of Jesus in the gospel. And and it's not that consuming is bad. We don't want to become the anti-consumerism church. It's not that consuming is bad. Rodney Clapp wrote this, and he's right. There is nothing wrong with consumption. We need to consume to live. Amen? Right? We need to consume to live. But when we begin to live to consume... 
when we make consumption an idol, when we, when we take uh, consumption and, and, and flip it around and put it in the wrong place of our priorities, when we begin to worship at the idol of consumption, which so many of us do, that's when we actually begin to seek death. We are seeking death when consumption becomes an idol in our lives. And, and Paul understood this when he wrote Colossians. Because he lived in a time and a culture that had some similar problems. People looking for God and looking for salvation and looking for deliverance and looking for fulfillment in all the wrong places. And so he wrote the book of Colossians to talk about the supremacy and the sovereignty and the grandeur and the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ who is complete and is sufficient and is enough for us. He is more than efficient. Colossians is this grand, expansive look at the glory, sovereignty, power, and majesty of the one true Savior. And that's why Jesus, and here's the outline for our four weeks, that's why Jesus is greater and more powerful than sin. That's what Aaron looked at last week. That's why Jesus brings a salvation that is bigger and wider and deeper than all of sin. That's what we're going to talk about today. That's why Jesus is able to unify and reconcile all things. We'll talk about that next week. And then on the 22nd, we'll talk about why Jesus will create a new community for us. And there are a number of things in this series that we've, that we've uh, pulled out of some of Michael Goheen's writings. And one of the things that he writes is this. He writes that Paul's context was the Roman Empire, which was idolatrous, unjust, seductive, pervasive, and powerful. Does that sound familiar? See, we need to remember that God is timeless and a timeless God would never produce dated material. This stuff in this book is just as reliable today, if not more, than it was the day it was written. Nothing has changed. Human nature has not changed. God has not changed. We might have better technology with which to express ourselves, but the sin behind everything that we do has not changed. And God has not changed. So it's all perfectly applicable today. So in Colossians, Paul presents us with a grand alternative story to the story that we have pounded into us day in and day out all year long, but is especially pounded into us at this time of year when everybody's got to make their profit. And the wrong story that gets pounded into us specifically that we're talking about this time of year is this idea that that there are false saviors out there that are going to save us from the hells that we think we are living in. And Aaron did a great job of, of, of unpacking that last week and explaining how the, the job of advertising and the job of marketing is, is to make you look at your life and decide that your life is hell because of something that's going on in your life. And, and as, as long as you're in this hell, you can never be happy or fulfilled. But look, we have this product that will save you from that hell. One pastor and author calls them We all have functional hells, and we all have functional saviors. And the problem is is that they don't even function that well. The problem is is that the true story of the gospel is what really saves. And so this is a story that we're trying to get across about a savior who is truer and better than anything else that we could pursue or desire. So the series is about us celebrating not just the first advent that Jesus has come, but it's also about longing for the last advent, the next advent And we get this from Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. Let me read it again. Here's what Paul says. And just listen to the the, uh, 
the, the language that, that is used here because it's so total and so complete and there are no exceptions and he closes every possible loophole. And it talks about the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ here. He writes, he, verse 15, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. If you want to know what God looks like, you got to look to Jesus. you got to read his gospels. you gotta, uh, you got to know his word you got to be involved with other Christians who can also demonstrate who he is to you. And so he is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. What Paul is trying to say there is that there's nothing out that exists outside of Jesus. He's before everything. He is eternal. There's nothing else out that exists outside of Jesus. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Do you see? Paul, Paul gives us this complete, total language, and then he just keeps pounding it. He's saying, look, I'm closing every possible loophole that you could think of here. Verse 17, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the church. He's the head of the body. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. We'll talk a little bit more about that, especially when we get into Hebrews. So understand, the birth of Jesus, Christmas, actually points to the second coming. So I've said it this way before. Jesus was actually born to die. He was born to die so that he could be raised from the dead to defeat sin, death, and Satan, and so that he could come again. This is all necessary for us. He's doing this because he loves us out of compassion for us and mercy and grace. This is all necessary. He was born to die. And I, and I understand there are a lot of people who at Christmas time really just want to keep Jesus in the manger. They just want baby Jesus meek and mild. Baby Jesus meek and mild is the creator, savior of the world. He is all-powerful. He is everything. And we should recognize him as such. Yes, he was in a manger. But he also rules the cosmos. Everything. As one guy says, there is no maverick molecule in the universe. Everything is under his sovereignty and everything is under his control. And so his resurrection gives us hope and expectation for that next arrival. Advent means arrival and so we're looking for that last arrival. In other words, here you go. We are a part of a long story. And I know that's really hard for those of us that live in this microwave society where everything is right at our fingertips. But we're a part of a long story. So we need to learn to slow down a little bit. There's a great tweet the other day. I, I, I can't remember who, who, who has it, but it was about the new Hunger Games movie. And here's what he said. I love how sequel movies take a year for the next one to come out. It makes our kids wait, something this culture never teaches them. So now we're looking for Hollywood to teach us how to wait, apparently. Well, the gospel story is one that makes us wait too, but the wait is worth it, and the promises are true. 
Advent is the opposite of all the consumerism and narcissism and instant gratification in which most of us get caught up in this time of year. Advent is waiting. It's patience. It's hope. It's faith. Sacrifice. Steadfastness. Commitment. Joy. And peace. And two of those things, hope and patience. I'll tell you what. Through Christ, when we combine hope and patience, really good things happen. Really good things happen. So embrace hope and patience. And so today is about Jesus being a Savior who offers a salvation, offers redemption, offers deliverance that is wider, deeper, broader, bigger than all of sin. And we get that especially from verses 16 and 20. Verse 16 where Paul says, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, invisible visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. If he created all things, he can bring it all back together and he has power over all things as well. He can do this. Everything else that we're seeking for fulfillment and deliverance can't do it. It's going to fall short, woefully short, and we're going to be disappointed. And then verse 20, and through him, through Jesus, to reconcile all things to himself, whether on and making peace by the blood of the cross. So you might say, well, well, I'm confused about this idea that he's bigger and broader and deeper than all of sin. What do you mean by, by sin? Well, let's define it. And here's what I mean by that. Sin is our state of being. I'm not talking here about our behavior. Now, is sin manifested in behavior? Absolutely. That's how we know that people are sinful because they manifest sinful behaviors, but that's not the extent of sin. Those behaviors point back at the fallen, corrupt nature that we have as a result of what happened in Genesis 3. So sin is our state of being. It's not our behavior. It's our, it is our misguided dependence on ourself, whether, whether, whether that misguided dependence comes through our worldview or our addictions or our behavior or our desires. No matter what it comes through, it's, it's what's wrong with us in the inner man. And the inner woman. It is Genesis 3. God created a perfect and sinless world. But then in Genesis 3, the created order was destroyed by the man and the woman. Created order is broken by sin. And as a result, there is nothing that is untouched by sin. And so we need a Savior that's broad enough, big enough, and deep enough because sin is so pervasive and so extensive. It touches Everything. There's no part of creation that it has not touched. And the truly insipid thing about the nature of sin that it, is that it, it corrupts us really without us even noticing. We notice the end result, but we hardly ever notice as it's happening. There's one author who calls this the creeping ease of sin. And I know this is true even in my own life. You know, I'll, I'll look at something and I'll go, I would never do that. And I would never even think about going down that path. But then something changes. Something gets tweaked. Maybe I get stressed or fatigued. Or maybe I'm just looking for my own personal pleasure. Whatever it is, I'll come back and I'll look at that thing and again and I'll go, maybe it is an option. Maybe. And so I'll start to dance around the edges. Because I'm strong. 
and I can resist if I, if I go too far, right? So I start to play around the edges of it. And I look at that path and I go, well, maybe it is, it, it's a different path. It's an alternative path. may not be the best path, but maybe it might offer something. And then something else happens. And the next thing you know, I'm looking at this behavior and I'm going, that's the answer. I haven't been fulfilled by this. It doesn't seem like God is answering my prayer. Notice the impatience. Notice the lack of hope. Notice the lack of anticipation for God. Something happens and I decide, you know what, that, that behavior will, or this path, this is the right path. I, I'm beginning to listen to the voices of the world. That's the creeping ease of sin. And so something that we once looked at and said no to, now we're going down that path and we're embracing that behavior. So sin is deceptive and it's percept, uh, pervasive and it's comprehensive. And so we are in desperate need of deliverance from that. And we need deliverance that is full and complete and sufficient and is enough because sin has broken our relationship with everything in the world. It's broken our relationship with God. It's broken our relationship with others. It's broken our relationship with creation itself, which itself is corrupt as well. And it's broken our relationship with ourselves. It's what's wrong with the world, but Jesus is what's right with the world. It's why he had to be born, why he lived, why he died, and why he's coming again. Jesus is a Savior whose salvation is broader and wider and deeper than sin in all of its power. And so turn to Hebrews 9. I want to show you how the, he- the author of Hebrews really helps to bring this out in this passage, in this chapter, really. Hebrews chapter 9. So if you're in Colossians, just go to your right a little bit. If you have a device, just push the right buttons. So we look at Hebrews chapter 9. The first 10 verses, I'm just going to kind of summarize for you. It's, it's a description of the tabernacle. The author of Hebrews is describing in part, the tabernacle, which was the tent of worship and ongoing sacrifice for sin that we find in the Old Testament that was a fixture of the first covenant or the old covenant, the covenant that was bound by and defined by the Mosaic law and one that that was actually fulfilled and completed in the coming of, of Jesus. But also, really important to understand, these first 10 verses also points to the yearly atoning work of the high priest who would go in and offer sacrifices for the sins of the people once a year, the Day of Atonement, not only for the sins of the people, but he had to go in and offer sacrifices for himself too because he himself was a sinner. And so he had to offer his own sacrifices first so that he could offer them on behalf of of the rest of the people. And these verses also speak of the ultimate deficiency of this system. That because it was something that had to be repeated, it was ultimately deficient. So these 10 verses, the first 10 verses of Hebrews 9 lay the groundwork for what the author of Hebrews gladly proclaims in verses 11 through 28. And he proclaims that Jesus is the full, final, better, truer, and superior answer to sin. In other words, he's the real high priest. And, and one more note before we go on. I think it's interesting. Jesus is the only high priest who never required atonement for his own sin before he could make his sacrifice for the sin of the people. That's a big deal. That means that he was perfect. 
That means that he was enough. He was sufficient. There's nothing better. It's not just that he's truer and better. It's that he's the only one. And so you look at that first paragraph after the first 10 verses. Verses 11 through 14, the author writes this, but, one of the great words in the Bible, but, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God to purify our conscience from the dead works to serve the living God? That but at the beginning of verse 11 indicates a significant change. Now Jesus has come. And notice it's the good things that have come. Not necessarily the good things that are coming, but the good things that have come. There's nothing left for us to do, in other words. Under the old covenant, there was a lot for us to do. But Jesus has done everything for us. We don't have anything to do anymore. It's finished. It's done. That's why Jesus can can be on the cross and look down and say, it is finished. The work is done. The, the, the last sacrifice has been made. And the perfect and uh, the greater and more perfect tent is not a physical earthly tent at all, but it's, but it's Jesus and God's very presence in our lives. We no longer have to go into a building to seek the presence of God, but rather through the resurrected Christ and His Holy Spirit, He is with us everywhere. That is the presence of God in our, in our lives. And verse 12 is just huge. Jesus entered once for all. So unlike the old covenant, this sacrifice never has to be repeated. It's done. And it was his blood that did the work. It's not the blood of bulls and goats and other animals. It was his own blood, his perfect blood, God's blood And that's why the author of Hebrews says that it secured for us eternal redemption. It's done. It's finished. Never go back. In verses 13 and 14, you see that the Holy Spirit was there with Jesus. Just like the Holy Spirit is here with us today, empowering us, encouraging us, leading us, guiding us, loving us. Jesus' sacrifice goes beyond our flesh. It goes beyond our behavior. It goes beyond our supposed good works, it says in verse 14. And it goes all the way to our inner man, our inner woman. It goes to our conscience. It goes to our soul. It goes to the very core of who we are. This is not behavior modification. It's changing who you are. You are now a new creation in Christ. Then you look at that middle paragraph, the longer one. Verses 22 through, I'm sorry, 15 through 22. Therefore, he, Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, a will like, um, uh, like not a person's constitution but a, pers- uh, but a, but a last will and testament. For, for where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. 
For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats and water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood... There is no forgiveness of sins. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. That's offensive to a lot of people, especially in today's culture, but that is true. Blood has to be shed, but now the perfect blood has been shed. And so this, verse, this, this paragraph starts off by talking about the new covenant, the final covenant, which is, which is not just better, but it's complete. It's exhausted. And those who have been saved and called and saved by God Saved by the grace of Jesus Christ through faith, we now have, it says, the inheritance of eternal life. That's a guarantee. That is a promise by the creator God of this universe. But in order for us to get that life, a death has to occur. Like I said, Jesus was born to die. Let us not forget that. And he died for us. And you look again at verses 16 through 18. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since, there is, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. The new covenant could not come until Jesus died. So his death is a tremendous grace to us. Just stop and ponder that. His death that he knew he was sent to from the very beginning, that he came to execute because that was God's plan and purpose in order to save his people. His death, which we look at, is horrific, and it is, but his death was a grace to us. It is the singularly greatest act of love, sacrifice, and compassion ever perpetrated in history, and he did it for us. That's why this is the sounding joy. And you look at verses 19 through 22 again. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. Verse 22, indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, but without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. It's the death of Jesus that forgives us of our sin and allows you and I to stand righteous before God, justified before God, as we've been looking at in Romans. He's the only Savior whose whose salvation is broad enough and deep enough and wide enough to handle sin, to, to handle the forgiveness of all of that. So Christmas... Advent is about the celebration of salvation and the hope of Jesus coming again to usher in the the finality of the kingdom of God to bring the new Jerusalem in. And then you look at that last paragraph, 23 through 28. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered 
not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. That's awesome. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have to to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for a man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. There's Advent. That's what we are to be doing, is eagerly awaiting, eagerly waiting for him. And early in that paragraph explains to us that anything before Christ, anything that we do with our human hands to try to make ourselves righteous before God is a mere copy of Jesus and therefore it's deficient and faulty. It's not good enough. In Jesus dwells all truth, all salvation, all wisdom, all deliverance, all righteousness, all knowledge, all grace, all mercy. He is enough. And, and you look at those middle verses, 25 and 26, I mentioned it as we went through them. They're just they're sweet, awesome verses. Jesus is so complete in his salvation that, that he only needs to do this one time. That's it. It's not true with the old covenant. The new covenant propels us into eternal salvation, eternal grace. It's done. It's finished. So my apologies to Peter Billingsley. This is the true Christmas story here. And then, like I said, we have it at the end of verse 28, Advent. Advent is us eagerly waiting and hoping for this second coming. when He's going to come and he's going to make everything right. And the next two weeks that we look at this series, that's what we'll be looking at. We'll be looking about how he has the power to reconcile all things and to unify all things. And then that last week is, is, is the fact that he's going to create for us a new community. And that this expectation actually calls for us to persevere in our faith. Aaron touched on this last week beautifully, I thought, as he wrapped up his message. He talked about how the idea that we're, we're waiting and anticipating eagerly this, this second arrival of Jesus is what helps propel us to persevere in our faith, to, to make us the church, to make us not uh, an intrusion in neighborhoods and communities, but rather a light in neighborhoods and communities. As we love our communities and love our neighbors and, and serve the people that are around us and, to, and, and that inside of the church we, we, we show honor and respect to everyone else in the church regardless of their stature or status and that, and that we're going to be lovers and givers and servers and not haters and takers and users. The human condition longs for satisfaction. We long for a sense of deliverance and fulfillment and contentment. And really the biggest reason we do is because of the sin that has corrupted everything. It's it's the break of the created order that now gives us this longing that we can't seem to, to fix on our own or through any of the alternative stories that we pursue. 
And so because of sin, we feel like we have to find something that's better than God to fulfill us. And that's what we're doing is we're just pursuing all this stuff. It's why consumerism and materialism look so good on the purpose and seem to answer our questions and our desires on the surface, but they really don't, do they? Once we get into it, they really don't. You see, that is... That is the nature of sin corrupting us without us even noticing. That is, that is the creeping ease of sin. It's that it gets us off our game. It gets us to look at other things that, that aren't true and will not fulfill us. And, and we'll pursue those things. There's a, many of you know him. His, his name was Jim Elliott. He was a missionary. And he died very early in his missionary career. But it didn't keep him from writing many journals in his late teens and early 20s that, that his wife Elizabeth eventually published and, and they're read by many people today and they're, they're filled with profound insights of wisdom. And there's one area of his journal where he talks about this, this problem of trying to fulfill the desires of our hearts with the things of this world. And, and he even talks about how it seems like whenever we want something, whenever we obtain that thing that we want, that we think is going to fulfill us, all it does is make us want a bunch of other stuff associated with that first thing that we just obtained. Have you ever noticed that? He talks about how, you know, a man wants a wife. Well, if he gets a wife, that requires a house, and, that, and the house requires that we fill it with children. And then if we fill it with children, that's going to require food and, and clothing, and then we have to have a washing machine for the clothing because the food gets on the clothing, and where does it end? He's not against marriage. He was married himself. But you see the case he's building. It's like me. It, I love technology. I, I'm not anti-technology. And I have a computer. I have one right here in my pocket, a small one. And then, of course, I have a laptop. I, I'm into that. It's, it's great. But I tell you, I hate buying a new computer. Because when I buy a new computer, it creates the fact that I need all this other stuff for the computer. It's virtually impossible to just buy a computer. You've got to buy the warranty for it because it's designed to break. You've got to buy extra RAM and whatever that other junk is that I don't even know. They see me coming, just right sucker on my forehead, and I'm walking in there. I need a case for the computer. I need to scotch guard it so it doesn't get dirty. I need all this extra stuff for my computer. I, I, Jackie says, we need a new TV. No! Because that's going to require remodeling the living room. <laughs> Here's how Elliot says it. Needs multiply as they are met. You see that? You know what that is? That is sin corrupting creation and corrupting our desires. And again, I'm not anti-consumerism. I'm just saying, look at what's happening. And we just go for it. We need a Savior whose salvation is as broad as that corruption. We need the gospel. We need the alternative story, the real story. We need the final and su sufficient fulfillment of life that only comes through baby Jesus being born, the incarnation of God in this world, the perfect sacrifice for our sins, the resurrection that defeats death and evil and Satan. And the promise that he's coming again, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus and find his rest. Sean Mortensen's going to come and lead us into our time of, of reflection and response. And Sean Johnson and the band are going to come and lead us as we 
as we uh, sing some more songs. Let me pray and we'll get ready to do that. God, we are so thankful that you are, you are not the alternative story. You're the true story. You're the one that actually fulfills. You're sufficient and you're enough. And so we thank you for that. We thank you and praise you for that. And so God, help us to, to see that and lean into it. Help us as, as we rush around. Help us to also rest in who you are and what you've done for us. And we ask it in your son's name. Amen.